Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are exploring the changing rules of business leadership and how CEOs are navigating this change. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Michal Avram. Alan, I'm going to start this week's episode the same way as I started last week's episode with a question for you. So since the pandemic lockdowns ended, do you have any idea how many live, in-person, non-Fortune, importantly non-Fortune events you've attended? And if you can remember, how'd you get your tickets for those events? Well, there's certainly been a lot. I mean, U.S. Open, fairs, local events. You know, our next guest spent a lot of time trying not to mention our competition, so I don't want to mention our competition. I'll take a pass. I'm going to say it, Ticketmaster. Uh, I I actually used Ticketmaster probably the last few, but I, I get a lot of tickets through Eventbrite and others as well. And one of my favorite recent ones was a Wrexham versus Manchester United game. That was definitely a post-pandemic highlight as far as live events go. Um, but I think today's Leadership Next guest would be very interested in um, our conversation because she and her company are, of course, on a mission to bring the world together through live events. And they are uh, determined to have a lot of fun while doing this. So today we're welcoming Julia Hartz of Eventbrite. Julia started Eventbrite back in 2006 with her then fiance, who's now her husband, Kevin Hartz. And she became CEO of the company in 2016. She actually took over the CEO role from Kevin. Um, And then she led Eventbrite through its $230 million IPO in 2018. Yeah, you and I both known Julia for uh, a while. I was really curious to talk to her about it. One of the things that I like about the platform is it's really easy to use and was meant to encourage people to have paid events, make it democratize paid events in a sense, not just uh, stadiums and big venues. So it was new to me that Eventbrite is doing such big business. Uh, Last year, they pulled in $3.3 billion in gross ticket sales and made $261 million in revenue, which was almost a 40% year-to-year increase. Obviously a big business. Yeah, absolutely. It was really interesting to hear her perspective on what's going on in live events uh, since the world reopened uh, and Eventbrite recovered from COVID and why these events are so expensive. Of course, we're talking more about the, you know, the Taylor Swifts and the and the Beyonce's of the world. Um, Julia had some interesting takes on just how Eventbrite is different. And I was really, really surprised to hear the average price of a ticket. Let's just say it's well below Taylor Swift uh, prices. Uh, and you briefly mentioned this, Mahal, but but Julia started Eventbrite with her now husband. I think she is probably the first Leadership Next guest we've had who started a company with a significant other. Uh, and we, of course, asked her about it and got to hear what that experience was like. Yeah, we did have co-CEOs on recently. And so now we've you know interviewed half of a husband and wife founder team. So we're... I, We're going to have like a whole family on pretty soon, I think, Alan. Um, So here it is, our conversation with Julia Hartz of Eventbrite. Um, So Julia, thanks for joining us. Um, I want to start off kind of going back to when you founded the company. And I think a lot of people probably don't know that you started Eventbrite in 2006. So 
nearly 20 years later. It's crazy. Um, talk a little bit about just what inspired you to start the company, if you can take us that far back. Yeah, I think I'll start with sort of where I place that really shocking number, which is that uh, working on a company with a team that we've had for two decades is one of the greatest honors of my life. I would place it only second to having uh, the family that I've created. How lucky am I to be able to lead this company? So back in 2006, obviously, I had no idea what what my life would be like. I had um, decided to leave the, the television industry, actually, through a series of things that had happened, but really just mostly seeing how much tech was disrupting the traditional media. And I had a front row seat uh, via my relationship with Kevin, who is my also my co-founder. And we were dating back and forth for two years, going back and forth between LA and San Francisco. So I had this sort of front row seat to what was happening in Silicon Valley during the years of 2003 through uh, 2005. And it was very clear to me that if I wanted to be on the disrupting side of things, I needed to consider a career change. And at the exact right moment in time, uh, the idea for what became Eventbrite came about and Kevin convinced me that I should leave my uh, very secure corporate day job and come work with him and Renaud Visage, our third co-founder, on building this idea. And I remember very distinctly the day that I moved out of my window office in uh, Fox Plaza and drove up to Northern California, where I'm from, and the same day pushed sawhorses and plywood into a windowless phone closet in Petrero Hill to start Eventbrite. And the only thing that was going through my head was, I hope he is not just totally nuts. And we're gonna we're gonna get to uh, your co-founder in work and in life a, a little bit later, but but I'm curious to hear also just about the the original mission to to bring the world together through live events and to be this kind of platform for fun. Um, I mean, did you were you aligned with this mission from the get go? And why do you think live events are so important to us as humans and for our well being? Well, two things had really converged for me. One was watching what PayPal actually did to a multitude of different industries. I think we all consider PayPal to be this long established company and we don't remember when we couldn't actually transfer money or become merchants ourselves as consumers. That changed with PayPal. So I would I would attribute the start of Eventbrite back to the origins of, you know, what that team built. And the reason why is because it it was the springboard for many different companies to launch products and services that would allow someone to do something they couldn't have done before. Effectively, that's a, sh a shorthand for democratization. And so when we thought about that vis-a-vis -vis live events, we thought, well, gosh, you know, people want to sell tickets ahead of an event, but they just don't have a great way to do that in a self-service manner. And then you take the, the consumer side and you think about how many indelible memories are created through live events and what that means to us today. Again, 20 years ago, I could never have predicted how important it would be to humanity today to be enabling live events. 
Yeah, Julie, it's so interesting to hear you talk about democratizing live events. Was your focus really on that, on empowering the event holder? And and did you see that as the distinguishing DNA between you and, say, a Ticketmaster? We did. We thought about it as, you know, someone who doesn't have the means to pay the money to get something at, from an incumbent provider. Really, you had to be big enough to even get their attention. And then you had to sign a huge contract and spend so much money on at actual surfers at the time. We wanted to build something that was as easy to use as Gmail. That was our original reference point at the time. And we wanted it to be for anyone. And I think we did two things that were completely against the norm and against the grain when we were starting our company. The first is that we did not pick a vertical to, to focus on. And the second is that we didn't pick a geography to focus on. The third is that we started a, a company as a couple, but we're going to cover that later. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was, it was what those, those two virtues coupled with the idea that everything should be self-service. You should never have to call someone and that it should be low cost and accessible. That's what actually made Eventbrite stick in the, in the you know, first two years of existence. I want to talk a little bit about uh, COVID-19 because obviously live events were hit hard. Hit hard is not even the word. I mean, they were just obliterated. We're in the live events business too, as you know. Uh, And then the world opened back up. And I mean, to us, it sometimes felt like we're, we're having revenge events, like everybody is so desperate to get together because they didn't get together. I wonder what that looked like from where you sit and from Eventbrite's business. Well, Alan, I remember the day that COVID came to to kill us and it was, uh, you know, we'd been talking about it. We'd been planning for it. We had a whole disaster scenario uh, already baked. And I woke up to a very early morning text from my CFO, Lanny Baker, and it just said, it's here. It was this like sinking feeling. So it was very visceral and sort of cinematic uh, because I looked at the previous day's results and it was very clearly starting. And from there, a company that had been 14 years in the making was obliterated in 14 days. And it wasn't Eventbrite. It was our it was our customers' businesses. All events ceased to happen. And that was a, a really stunning um, experience because... The disaster plan actually didn't really matter at that point. It was a totally different ball game. I mean, there was there was I don't think that you can truly sit back and design a black swan event that would be so dramatic and such a direct impact. So what we did was we, you know, really focused on the most important things. The first thing was that we needed to make sure that we could survive in order to help support our creator survival. And the second thing we needed to do was we needed to advocate for our creators because these are the this is the fabric of small businesses. These are small venues. These are or, local organizations. We needed to figure out how we could help them survive. And then the third thing was, of course, helping our own team through such a dramatic change. And a number of different, very big decisions needed to be made in a very short amount of time. So within 30 days of that day, we had actually shrunk the company by 50%. And we had raised capital to be able to withstand the longest duration of COVID. Uh, those were, you know, very tough decisions to make on both fronts. But it was there was no um, gray area. 
I guess. So when I look at that moment in time and how quickly we moved, I think that made the difference between us being here today and not. So this is a little bit of a, a different era now. You've come out of we've 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 all come out of COVID, right? And um and and you're starting to see you have been for a while that revenue is significantly improving. And you know, like Alan said, it's kind of the the revenge. Uh, you know, era now for for live events. Um, your revenue was up almost forty percent year to year. Um, talk to us a little bit about just where that's coming from. Primarily, has that source changed and shifted over the years? And and also maybe just start with the basics here. How does Eventbrite actually make money? What's the business model? Yeah, so our business model is that, you know, predominantly about 95% of our revenue comes from ticket fees that are associated with paid tickets. Eventbrite is, you know, has ticketed uh, millions of events in the last 12 months and, you know, hundreds of, of millions of people have bought tickets to events in 180 countries. So the scale is really exciting, but it comes down to how we can help our creators sell more tickets to the events that they're posting. And getting a greater share of audience for those creators means it, it, it's an order of magnitude impact on their business. Because when you think about a yoga workshop or a live concert, every incremental person that attends that event is a really sort of pure profit for the event creator once they've cleared the cost of producing the event. And so our ability to drive those tickets are is immensely important. And I think that's really what happened to us when we shrunk all the way down and had to get back to the basics of what makes Eventbrite unique. It became how we can help these creators grow their businesses in ways that are transformational. So we threw away our roadmaps and we focused around building audience and not only how we could bring consumers to the table, but most importantly, how creators on Eventbrite could use their marketing dollars more efficiently to find people because they know their business, they know their community. And so we really have been focusing on driving demand and how that is a unique value proposition for Eventbrite because we know how to find consumers for the events that are on the platform. I, I, I want to ask you to like be real here. Was there a moment throughout some of the, the hardest time here when you know, you, you weren't sure if the company would make it. And how did you pull yourself out of that? Because like you said, this was, this came to kill you guys, like it obliterated the business. And of course, for the creators, but for, for you guys specifically, how did you manage through that? I remember exactly the day that I, that I called our uh, longtime trusted partner. And at the time, our lead independent director, Ruloff Botha from Sequoia Capital. And I said, in my nuts to, you know, be fighting so hard to save this company because we had to do a lot of really hard things very quickly. And I just needed the reality check of, am I being completely blind and oblivious to, to reality or am I on the right track? I went into wartime CEO mode. And I actually think this is something that is a uh, undervalued attribute of strong women leaders is that when it's time to fight and when it's time to get into the middle of saving something, we're a pretty good, good person to bet on type of leader. And so 
I had this conversation with him. It was about five minutes long and I, I, he knew exactly what I was asking. And he said, are you, you're the, absolutely you should fight. The story doesn't end here. We're not giving up. People need events. They're going to need to gather even more so after the pandemic. So, um, you know, I think that's all it took actually that one conversation. Jason Gerzadis, the CEO of Deloitte U.S., is the sponsor of this podcast and joins me today. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Alan. It's great to be here. Jason, we live in an era of disruption, technology disruption, geopolitical disruption, workplace disruption, and it makes accurate predictions about what's going to happen in the future more difficult than it has ever been. Yet the polls that we do together with you show that most business leaders largely remain optimistic. Why do you think that is? Well, I think optimism is a result of the fact that we've been through an incredibly tumultuous three years. And so I think business leaders realize that they've built resiliency into their organizations. The prospect of even more disruption isn't as foreign of a concept. And I think there's more confidence in their ability to adapt and to be agile. Secondarily, there's been tremendous investment in technology and new capabilities that client organizations and executives broadly are optimistic about those creating more value and more opportunity. So. It's a function of what we've been through, as well as the investments that have been made that give a sense of optimism despite some of the headwinds. And what's your advice to companies that are struggling with the potential disruption in the future? Well, disruption is the new normal. I don't think there's any placid water on the horizon or calmness that we can predict. So it's a function of getting accustomed to the discontinuities that are ahead of us, whether it's around technology or geopolitical change or workplace changes associated with the future of work or the demands of the talent workforce changes the new normal is a result. It is requiring executive teams to actually look holistically at those challenges, be facile with doing scenario planning and being on the lookout for where and how to capitalize on disruption versus being concerned by it or seen as a barrier to their success. Jason, thanks for your perspective and thanks for sponsoring Leadership Next. Thank you. We are 20 minutes into this interview and no one's mentioned Taylor Swift yet. So there's it's always a good time to pivot to Taylor Swift because because, you know, you from the depths of that uh, that recession that's so extraordinary. It wasn't just a recession. As you said, everything shut down. We've now gone back to something that seems almost equally crazy. I mean, that's the biggest grossing uh, uh concert series in history. Uh, I've seen numbers that concert tickets are way more expensive. Everybody seems to be just trying to make up for everything they lost. How? Uh, why did this happen and how long will it last and how does it affect you? Well, I can't start with not without pointing out the differences between buying a ticket on Eventbrite and buying a ticket anywhere else. So when you buy a ticket, when you buy a ticket on Eventbrite, wait, 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 wait. You said a- a- anywhere, anywhere else, else you else. mean Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster. No, I, I buy <laughs> Not gonna say it. Yeah, uh, the average ticket fee on on Eventbrite is is less than ten percent, right? So that's that's the key. There's a key component in that, but I do think that there's a general misunderstanding of where an inflated ticket fee is going. I'll I'll leave it at that. The ticket fee that's going to Eventbrite is going to Eventbrite and credit card processing. So we're passing about half of that through to the credit card processor and we're keeping the other fee, um, the other half of the fee to power the services and everything that, that we offer. So 
When you look at a phenomenon, I think what's hard to assess is just the general trends ex Taylor Swift. Because when you look at a phenomenon like Taylor Swift, that is in any, any market going to be a hyperbole. I mean, she has now single-handedly uh, propped up theaters post, you know, Barbenheimer. And uh, this is a, an economic force. I'm really happy that, that she's getting the credit she deserves to be driving the economic impact in the local cities that she's touring because she's about to go international and that's going to be a huge boon to those, um, to those cities. It's like a Super Bowl three times over. So um, every single weekend. So I think that's incredible. What, what I think this has, has the chord that it struck with consumers is that getting back out to be in community with people who love the things that you love and being able to afford them, having that not be the case and having it be so inaccessible is, it's insulting and it's injuring to consumers. And so what we focus on at Eventbrite is how can we power the best events that are accessible to everybody? The average ticket price on Eventbrite is $40. So it's a, just a very, very different, I'm not trying to sort of weigh distance us because I think live events are live events, but we ticket the things that are happening during the week for you that are happening all the time. I mean, Alan, I bet if you went into your Eventbrite app, which I know is on your home screen, and you looked at the tickets that you've bought over the last, now we've decided that it's close to 20 years, I bet it would tell a story of what you're interested in, of the people that you want to be around, you know? And so that's what we're focused on is how can we put the right event in front of the right consumer at the right time, wherever they are, so that they can be with each other. I, I'm sorry, Mahal, I have one more question before we get to starting a, starting a business with her husband. Um, <laughs> so, Are you going to ask about AI? I have a feeling you're going yes, to Yes, I am. AI. How did you know? Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, like, it's like Taylor Swift and AI are must-ask questions in every podcast <laughs> interview. You this in every interview. <laughs> <laughs> so at its core, Eventbrite is a tech company. You've always said that. Um, uh, beyond just leveraging tech for your ticketing platform. I mean, how does this new generation of AI tools, how is that going to change the Eventbrite experience? Well, look, I think we all went out, got really excited, downloaded some sort of generative AI chatbot and, you know, explored what the possibilities could be. And it's, it's, I'm definitely on the side of being very excited about what it can bring to us and having, you know, a bit of caution as to what it can do to us I think it could be uh, an order of magnitude more impactful than what social media, you know, did to, to what we did with social media, let's put it that way. So I do think that the unlocking of efficiency, but also the unlocking of connection are the two things that we're most excited about. Like anyone, we're looking at ways that we can, we can be more efficient in running the core business and thinking about how we don't need, you know, as much to do but then from, you know, how can we connect people to great events? I think that searching in and, and browsing and discovering is going to be obsolete in the next three years. I think you're always, you are basically as a consumer going to prompt an engine to tell you exactly what it thinks you should do. And it will be contextual. It will be somewhat emotional. Um, and it'll be based on, on what the AI knows about you. So, um, so I'm certainly excited about that. But then the second thing is how can we help event creators be more successful? I mean, these aren't, you know, Taylor Swift uh, size creators who are putting on something that's a machine. These are 
you know, local businesses and entrepreneurs that are trying to find a product market fit between their community and content that they're producing. And I think there's many ways that we can unlock that for them. And we're starting to do it now. We're starting to deploy some of those, those tools today. Okay. We're finally going to ask about your, one of your co-founders and your husband. We've sort of, Kevin's been in like the background. We've, we've brought him up a, a few times. Um, but, but I'm, I'm curious, um, what have you learned from the experience of co-founding a company with your, you know, then fiance, now husband? What were some of the challenges? What were some of the, the, the benefits and the positives there? Well, I'll start with a story, which is when, uh, you know, we all went from work from home or work from office to work from home. Do you remember that? It was for me, it was around March 11th. And I remember being the last person at the office in San Francisco's big 50,000 square foot office that we were bursting at the seams. Uh, and there was like lines in the in the bathroom. It was just, it was getting awkward. And I remember everybody getting their work from home set up and I was the last person to leave the office. And that felt, that felt right to me as the CEO and as the leader. And I came home and I was just, you know, in autopilot at that point because we were in the middle of it. And uh, we were producing negative revenue at that at that moment in time. And so that's a that's a really scary place to be as a as an operator. And I got home and I walked into our home office and Kevin had arranged these um, gaming monitors, you know, they're really long and kind of curved into almost a 180 uh, or a 360 rather degree circle with two chairs in the middle. And there was a whiteboard and like nothing else. And it was the most romantic thing <laughs> that I've ever, <laughs> I don't know if that's saying a lot, but it was a really romantic gesture. And the reason why it was romantic is because visually I was not going to be alone. And so I think the obvious benefit of starting a company with someone who you're very close with, whether it's your partner or, you know, or not uh, in life is is that partnership, is that idea that shoulder to shoulder you stand or sit and you're gonna go through that together. So for 90 days straight, we sat in this room um, and we, and we, we you know, we, we've worked with about 50 people on saving Eventbrite and it was exhilarating, it was difficult, it was not always pretty, but that companionship I think is is, you know, the best part. Uh, and uh, the unconditionalness of it. And so it also makes us great co-parents. So we walk into any school, you know, teacher-parent meeting and we're like, we're on it. You know, everybody knows, like we divide and conquer better than anyone. And so, you know, generally we're, we're very functional in that way. Um, but the hardest part has been, just to give you kind of a balanced perspective, is that, you know, Kevin was CEO for 10 years and then I took over. And that was the hardest transition for us because it meant that he stepped out of the day-to-day -day business. And we'd been sitting together. Nobody ever wanted to sit next to us. We, I mean, we understood. It's like, we're the founders. We're also married. We really miss working day-to-day -to -day together. That was actually harder for our relationship than working every day together because we'd built our whole lives based on this one premise. And so, you know, where we've, where we've gotten in the last six years or so is, you know, Kevin is insatiable in his um, curiosity and wanting to build. And he can channel that through me, but he can also support me. And that's been incredible because you really do need people in your corner to survive 
the last few years that being a CEO has entailed, just generally speaking, um, especially in tech. So, you know, it's been it's been wonderful because he's like a built in mentor, but also a husband. So it's like it's, you know, it's all like in one package. It's great. <laughs> I'm going to ask you one more kind of semi-personal question, and and that's just um, you're one of few women who has taken a company public, um, and I wonder if there are some, you know, you mentioned like the mama bear aspect earlier when it came to time to save your company. Anything else that's that's kind of been unique to you along that process and any helpful tips that you have to share with other women? Yeah, well, you know, on September twentieth, uh, I think I got the date right, but it might be, might have been the twenty first, um, two thousand eighteen. Eventbrite went public, and that was such an incredible day because we had always imagined that if we achieved a certain revenue growth rate, if we had predictability in the business, if the market was was clear, that we would go public. And so it was a wonderful day. We had our customers there. We had our first 10 employees with us. We had our families. And it felt almost like a second wedding in a weird way. And I remember standing on the balcony. At Did the you year. renew your vows? We should have. <laughs> now that I think about it, we haven't done that yet. But as I stood on the balcony of the New York Stock Exchange with Kevin and our team, um, the the head of the New York Stock Exchange at the time said, we went back through the archives and as long as we have photos, we do not have this balanced of a of gender on on the balcony. And it kind of made my my blood run icy cold because I mean, 2018, like you're not, you know, I wasn't expecting to hear that and it sort of made it bittersweet for me. And I think at the time I was the second youngest woman to ever take a company that was founded, you know, that I founded public. And that also bummed me out. So it was just sort of this like a little bit of wet blanket on an otherwise amazing day. Um, and I just, you know, at that point I made a, I made a really strong promise with myself that I, I'm now I need to help others cross this transom. And I'll tell you, I took it very personally when, women founder CEOs leave their companies after they go public because that's a huge loss. Less than 1% of companies that have gone public have been led by by women in the last 10 years. So I just want to say that on the day that we're recording this, Fiji Simo just took Instacart public. And I think it's incredible what she's done. You know, there's been so much, it's such good fodder when a company goes public because the S1, and especially when it's, you know, had these ginormous valuations, yada, yada, yada. She came in and after two years established five straight quarters of profitability. So I just want to like, I think that like, these are moments where we can applaud women who are in a very small cohort of taking their, taking companies public, whether they founded them or not. And also, I think that women are great people to put into companies during crisis. And I think that's a little bit of a, of a, um, I don't know, a debate, you know, that people want to have. And it's like, I don't think there's a debate. I think we should appreciate the fact that women are great wartime CEOs, and that's a great asset to companies overall. Julia, uh, uh, what's what's next for Eventbrite? Take us like 10 years into the future and tell us what the Eventbrite experience is going to be like. Yeah, well, Eventbrite is now focused on something we've been waiting, really waiting to do, but COVID interrupt us, uh, which is focusing on the consumer side of our business. You know, we have been so 
um, organized and focused on what makes the event creator successful. And you know, the number one thing they want from us is to help find more audience, more consumers. In order to do that, we have to build trust with consumers. So over the next few years, we're really focused on what does it mean for Eventbrite to be top of mind when you're just thinking about things to do? I think Eventbrite's achieved a certain amount of ubiquity in you know, places where I have critical mass and density of events where people go, yeah, I think I know Eventbrite. Seven out of 10 people on the street of New York would say that. I think that we have an opportunity to finally solve the problem of event discovery, which is a, still a big problem. It's super fragmented, hard to find. You figure, find out about events after they happen and Eventbrite's going to solve that problem. So that's what's next for us. We're very excited about it. And I, I'm excited wow. to do that on a global wow. s- scale. That's great. Final question, when, when you are not running to events and not running the company, uh, what book are you reading or have you recently finished that made a big impact on you? Oh, I have so many. Okay. Oh, good. Okay, okay, okay. Because my, my mom's a, my mom is an editor, so I she reads so much and then she passes them to me. So fiction, I would say can't The Candy House by Jennifer Egan and then go back and read um, uh, her first book, The Goon Squad. Uh, and it is a phenomenal prescient take on social media and just on, you know, communication in general. So she's sort of the, I would say, um, you know, like uh, the author of The Handmaid's Tale, the Margaret Atwood for our generation. Uh, so the other, the other book that I think is so undervalued and so phenomenal is actually by Stephen King, 112263. It's a time traveler book about the JFK assassination unbelievable piece of literature that I just think goes overlooked because of, I don't know, more popular thrillers that he writes. Um, And then on the nonfiction side, I have read every single leadership book known to mankind. The first one that I have ever gone back to just numerous times and keep on my desk is CEO Excellence by, um, by Carolyn Dewar and the team over at McKinsey. I think it's such a phenomenal book and I reference it all the time. Yeah. You know, we uh, asked that question of the Fortune 500 uh, CEOs, and I know you're on your way to being a uh, uh, to being a member. But uh, we asked that question this year and it was it was one of the top mentioned books. The CEO excellence really uh, attracted a lot of attention. Those are great recommendations. I'll go I'll go home and start reading right now. love all the fiction recommendations in particular that was refreshing so um julia thank you so much for joining us lovely to see you thank you so much for having me it's great to see you both leadership next is edited and produced by alexis hot our theme is by jason snell our executive producer is megan arnold leadership next is a product of fortune media Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 